So today we'll look at how that order of Genesis 2, creation order leadership, lies at the foundation of the New Testament understanding of relationships in the church and in the home. And so we'll, we'll get right started uh, quickly here, but I just want to remind you about what we've been seeing in terms of different ways of looking at the text now um, than what we have seen before. Putting a lens on in order to read the Bible. Just as a filter placed on a camera lens colors everything that one sees through it, so using a lens in reading Scripture tinges what it says and even our understanding of what the will of the Lord is. Scholars of the Bible have been especially eager to employ a gender lens in reading the writings of the Apostle Paul. Because to many of them, Paul seems hopelessly patriarchal and even misogynist, meaning he hates women. And so they attribute the statements actually that he makes to him and his own hang-ups, not to the word of the Lord, as if you could divide the two. A gender lens reading of 1 Timothy has Paul silencing women completely, relegating them exclusively to childbearing, prohibiting them from any meaningful work in the church, except perhaps for some necessary assistance that they may render to deacons. The reason, according to this gender lens, that all women should be in subjection to men, that Eve was gullible and deceived, and that women today are just as gullible as she was and not to be trusted with any important work in the church, is, as one Old Testament scholar, based on these chapters of Genesis, childbearing is her woman's proper function and let her not get involved in seminars with snakes. That's David Klein's, What Does Eve Do to Help? and Other Readerly Questions to the Old Testament. He actually, it's interesting because he, for many years, believed the gender lens reading of Genesis and then finally came to the conclusion this just doesn't make, make sense of Genesis at all. It really is what it sounds like it is. He said, I really wanted to believe it was true. But he came to the conclusion you know, that uh, Genesis is egalitarian and everyone is equal and, as, and, and Eve was actually wise in taking the fruit of the tree. Not so. To understand any text in the Bible, as we've said before, we need to see the big picture. And in the case of 1 Timothy, which is what we're going to look at mostly today, it helps to understand the reason Paul wrote it. Now, he doesn't explicitly say why he wrote a given letter all the time, but in 1 Timothy, he actually does. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. And uh, beginning with verse 14, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. Verse 15, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Apparently, Paul would like to have um, this very clear. And all, all, not only for Timothy, but clear for us. 
And uh, so what is the theme of 1 Timothy according to Paul? What is it? We just read it. Verse 15. How to behave in the house of God. Yes, the order in the church and leadership in the church. This is what 1 Timothy is all talking about. And this includes accurately teaching important biblical themes because there's a lot of theology in 1 Timothy about God and about Christ, the law and the gospel, last day events, in addition to order and organization in the church. In fact, the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, and you think about it, that's actually what our church manual has, right? It has our fundamental beliefs and and how we function as a church. So the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, volume 6, page 107, calls Paul's epistles to Timothy and Titus the earliest church manuals. The earliest church manuals. Significantly, Paul calls the church the house of God in this verse, verse 15, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So he connects the rules he gives in 1 Timothy 2 and 3 with the rules that he gives for the Christian household in his other epistles. Rules that were addressed to husbands, wives, parents, and children. And so it will help us actually to look at some of these rules which lay the foundation for what he says about the church as the household of God. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And that's actually where the title of this uh, talk this morning comes from. Ephesians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So um, what is wisdom? It's knowing God's will. How do we know God's will? It's Spelled out right here in Ephesians 5 and 6. And it starts more specifically in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now this verse has been often misunderstood as if it were to mean that we should all submit to each other in the church. But actually, no one really believes that. I don't think that we believe that parents in the church should submit to their children and, and you know, leaders in the church should submit to um, just anyone in the church and what they say. Um, and actually, the Greek text doesn't use the word submit in verse 22. At least the most important manuscripts don't use it. Um, where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So, a literal translation of verses 21 and 22 would be this, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So in other words, what follows verse 21 explains how we are to submit to each other in the church. Because there is a series of asymmetrical social relationships that are spelled out. And that's a fancy way of just saying you know, um, on a social level, we're we're different. Wives should um, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, verse 22. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. 
and chapter 6, verse 5, bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So in each of these relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, or fathers and children, and masters and bondservants, there is a relationship of submission of one to the other. Paul also, though, doesn't just leave the instruction to those who are to submit. He also has specific instructions for those who are in authority in order that they might not abuse that privilege of power that they have in the church and in the home. So in verse 25, for example, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. In chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Likewise, with regard to masters, Paul says in verse 9, You masters, do the same things to them, that is, your, your servants, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So these, were very, these are very important instructions for everyone and shows how we're to relate to each other in a successful and harmonious way in the home. Now, of course, uh, the instructions to masters and servants, sometimes we, we filter that through a lens too of American slavery. And it's important to know that in the Roman Empire, servants were very, uh, could be very responsible and have great responsibilities in the home. Managing affairs, sometimes larger states. There's even tales written about uh, servants who got wealthy and, and, were, and many times servants uh, were set free by their masters after a period of successful service. So it wasn't at all like what we think of sometimes when we think of, of slaveholding. Um, it was a very different arrangement, more of an economic arrangement. The same is true, by the way, in the Old Testament. Um, you know, the servants in the Old Testament, it was a way of paying debt. If you didn't have the money to pay, you could contract for a period of time, no more than six years, to be a servant to someone. And that way you could pay your debt and you wouldn't have to uh, lose your property and your land. And uh, the law actually prescribed that in the seventh year that that was to end, a maximum of six years, unless the servant wanted to be a servant in the house forever. And then he, he was to... Uh, pierce his ear and, and uh, have a ring in his ear to show that he was a perpetual servant. So, that, but it was his own choice. It wasn't something that could be imposed on him. So um, it's important to distinguish what the Bible says about servants and service from sometimes some of the ideas that we have. Um, passages like Ephesians 5 and 6 have been widely known as household codes. Household codes or codes of conduct for the Christian home. So when Paul speaks of the church as the household of God in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it's natural that he, in that context, spells out how relationships in the church should function. And so we could call 1 Timothy a code of conduct for the church. Another way, a fancy way of saying church manual. Since these rules in 1 Timothy are for the church, Paul addresses several different groups, as we saw in Ephesians 5 and 6. So looking now again at 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
The first seven verses are clearly addressed to everyone, all people. All, first verse, it says that I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all. For all men or all people. Not just for church members. Because God wants all to be saved, it goes on to say. And Christ died for all. Um, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. And verse 6, who gave Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. So Paul is concerned with, uh, with all people in these first seven verses. Beginning in verse 8, he then addresses specific groups in the church. Men in verse 8 and women in verses 9 to 15. So in verse 8, he says that, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And verse 9, beginning there, he says that women in worship should dress modestly and not usurp the teaching authority of church leaders, that is, ministers and elders. Paul bases this on Genesis 2 and 3, as we'll see in a moment. Then in chapter 3, Verses 1 to 7, he deals specifically with the qualifications for overseers or elders. The word, two words are used interchangeably by Paul. In, you can see that clearly in Titus chapter 1, where the rules for overseers and elders are repeated. And these uh, qualifications include the ability to teach, being the husband of one wife, and able to manage one's own house. And this last point shows the close connection Paul sees between the home and the church. Now, beginning with verse 8 through verse 13, Paul has qualifications for deacons. And these are very similar to the qualification for the minister and elder, including for deacons being the husband of one wife and managing one's own house well. Then um, he has other councils, uh, especially relevant for the last days in chapter five, 4 and in 5 and 6. He gives instructions for the older members and younger members of the church and widows in the church, as well as instructions regarding how to deal with true and false teachers in the church. So that's an overview of 1 Timothy. Let's take some time now to look at key passages in chapters 2 and 3. And we'll address also some of the questions that have been raised about them. As we saw, uh, the two main groups addressed in chapters 2 or 3 are men and women in chapter 2 and male church officers and, um, in chapter 3. As well, in verse 11, it refers to some women who assisted the deacons. So, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, I desire, the word is bulimai in Greek. He's expressing God's will for how men and women conduct themselves in worship. But, so he says, I desire. But it's not a strong way of saying it. It's actually a very uh, gentle way of saying it. It's not given the force of a strong command. So men are to lead out in prayer and to be good models in worship, verse 8. The women are to dress modestly, verses 9 and 10, without adornment and be adorned with good works. Hopefully, this is not too controversial so far. Even though maybe some Adventists have begun to question rules on adornment, Paul makes them very clear here. Next, Paul does something, he does command something. 
In fact, it's the first imperative or use of the command form in Greek in 1 Timothy. In both verses 11 and verse 12, Paul instructs that women keep silence. But it's connected with how they relate to church leadership. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now, does this mean that a woman is not allowed to teach even a Sabbath school class or speak in church? It can't mean that. Why? Well, in comparing Scripture with Scripture, we remember that a few years earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul wrote about how women should pray and prophesy during the worship service. And so obviously he's not forbidding all speaking. And by the way, tomorrow we'll look more carefully at 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 in this connection. It's interesting that there are two main words used by Paul for silence. And the Greek word used in 1 Corinthians 14, sigao, means to stop talking. It really means stop talking, be quiet. But here in verses 11 and 12, Paul uses a very different word, husikia in Greek. And this means without disturbance, in quietness, in harmony. It, 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 it connotes peace and harmony. In fact, the adjective of this root word is used in verse 2, where it talks about leading a quiet and peaceable life or peaceful life. So Paul uses this word deliberately, it seems, because he does not want the established leadership authority in the church to be challenged. And he is instructing women especially to promote harmony through their submission to church authority. Actually, Paul says it more strongly than that, as the New International Version makes clear that they should learn in silence with full submission. Full submission. Of course, the flip side of this power relation is important too. And that's given in Titus 2 verse 15, where Paul urges Titus to speak these things, exhort and rebuke with full authority. Let no one disregard you. So it's very important, according to Paul, to maintain the established authority in the church. The next verse explains in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 12, explains more fully what Paul means by submitting to church authority. And he makes two separate points in this verse. The first point underscores Paul's instruction that women are to submit to established church leadership using an even stronger prohibition than the imperative form in verse 11. He says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now the word translated in the New King James Version for authority in Greek is authenteo. It's actually only used here in the New Testament and really quite a rare word it means to, a, to assume a stance of independent authority, to dictate, domineer. The, it's a very strong word, in other words. The noun form, authentes, means master or ruler. 
So in light of this usage, the King James Version translation, usurp authority, is really quite good. It really communicates the meaning here that Paul has in mind. So by commanding women to be in submission to the men leading out in the worship service, Paul seems to be heading off any possibility of a power struggle in the church between them. There, the women are to main, remain peaceful or quiet. That's how the, the uh, English Standard Version translates, to remain quiet. What reasons does Paul give for this command? Creation. Exactly right. He does not base the reason on some unique situation in Ephesus, where Timothy was at the time. No, there's no hint anywhere in 1 Timothy that Paul is dealing with anything unique here. The same kind of things he warns about here, he warns about in many of his epistles. To the contrary, it seems to be part of his overall instruction regarding how order in the church is to be maintained. And verses 13 and 14 give two reasons in order for this instruction. Verse 13, Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What chapter of the Bible is Paul referring to there? Genesis 2. Yes, Genesis 2. Adam was formed first, then Eve. We looked at that yesterday. Does it refer to human beings before or after the fall? Before the fall. So this is very important. One of the reasons that Paul gives for this is a pre-fall condition of human beings. The ideal situation of human beings as God created them. Verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What chapter of the Bible does this refer to? Genesis 3. Exactly right. So you've got, in order, reason number one is Genesis 2. Reason number two is Genesis 3. Now, it's interesting that that's not the only, not just order, but the word deceive in Greek that Paul uses is the exact word used in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, written before Christ, in Genesis 3.13. The same word in Greek, deceive. Paul is using this word to point to the verse where Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Same word. The fact that Paul quotes Scripture as the authority for this instruction shows that his teaching is meant to be applied everywhere and at all times, and is not just for special situations. So why might Paul base this teaching about the roles of men and women in the church on Genesis 2 and 3? What did we discover yesterday in our study of that passage? Do you remember? In Genesis 2, who was in charge? Who was the initiator? Who was to keep and tend the garden? Who, to whom was the command not to eat the tree given? Who named the animals? Adam. Okay. He even called the female woman. Okay. So uh, he was the authority in Genesis 2. The man was the authority before the fall. How did that change after the fall in Genesis 3? 
Who took the initiative? Eve, with the encouragement of the serpent, of course. So the leadership principle of Genesis 2 is completely, we saw, reversed in Genesis 3. Eve saw the, she first of all engaged the serpent and he engaged her, speaking to her. And then in repeating God's command, remember, she said, we are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So she was speaking for both herself and for Adam. She was taking the leading role here. And remember also when God approached Adam after his sin, he said what? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded, saying you shall not eat of it. It wasn't just that, I mean, yes, it was, it, the worst was he ate the fruit. But also, it was in obedience to his wife, which was contrary to God's command. And reversing the leadership order that God had established, creation order leadership of Genesis 2. And this is exactly what Paul is referring to. Do you see how he's using Genesis 2 and 3 to point out why in the church the leadership order should continue as God established it at creation? Some of you may be thinking, okay, well, maybe that's clear, but what on earth is Paul talking about in 1 Timothy 2.15? Are women saved by having children? Well, remember that in verse 14, Paul has just referred to what? To whom? Who is the woman that was deceived? Eve. Okay. He's referring specifically to not just all women, but to a particular woman. And that is to Eve. Now, is there anything in chapter 3 of Genesis that refers to the woman and childbirth? Yes. Of course, the promise of God, the great gospel promise in verse 15 of Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would come and bruise the serpent's head and save us from sin. Notice something else interesting here in 1 Timothy 2.15. It says, nevertheless, she, okay, referring to the woman in verse 14, she, Eve, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. So it's two different groups here actually referred to. Who is she and who are they? She, we've already said, is Eve, the woman of Genesis 3, the woman of verse 14 here. Eve will be saved through childbirth. Paul is pointing to the fact that down through history, the women descended from Eve's godly... Um, you know, salvation after she was redeemed, you know, after, after the sacrifice was given in Genesis 3, her, her life was, would be uh, followed on by a godly line of children. Same with Adam. And we'll look at that in a moment. So, Paul is pointing to the fact that through, down through history, women have had a very special role in the plan of salvation because Jesus was born in fulfillment of this promise to Eve, the promised seed, the promised Savior, descended not only from Adam, but also from Eve. 
So who does they refer to? Well, because Eve didn't give birth to the Messiah, although in Genesis 4 it sounds like she might have thought her first son would be the promised seed um, because she seems to call him the Lord. She didn't give birth to the Savior. It was through a long line of faithful women who continued in faith, love, and holiness with self-control that Jesus was born. So in the Bible, we really have two lines of godly people. Redeemed men descended from Adam who bear the leadership role among God's people and redeemed women descended from Eve through whom the promised Savior was born. Now, what does this have to do with church officers? Quite a lot. Because the instruction about how men and women should behave in worship in chapter 2 paves the way for Paul's instruction on leadership in chapter 3. And so let's review again the logical order of chapters 2 and 3. In verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2, Paul addresses all people. It's gender inclusive. Beginning with verse 8 through the end of chapter 2, Paul addresses in turn first men in the church and then women in the church. So it's gender specific. And then in chapter 3, he addresses church officers as the husband of one wife. So it's gender exclusive. Because Paul shifts to even more specific gender exclusive language in 1 Timothy 3, the New King James Version and New American Standard Bible of verse 1 translate it best. If any man desires the position or aspires to the office of overseer or bishop as the New King James Version has, it is a fine work he desires to do. Paul then lists the qualifications for this office. Verse 2, an overseer or bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, and so on. I want to focus on this phrase, the husband of one wife. It limits the office of overseer to men for several reasons. First of all, the qualification is a fixed requirement. It is always used in connection with these church office requirements. Wherever we have the qualifications for these offices, this requirement appears. Both here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, for overseers or elders, and verse 12, for deacons, and also in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, for the elders or overseers. Secondly, the women assistants who are referred to in verse 11, likewise their wives or women, the word simply means women in Greek, must be reverent and so on. So it gives a list of qualifications separate from both elders and deacons for these women. And so since it's got a list of different qualifications for them, they don't pertain to either office. They're not connected. They're not a deacon, nor are they an overseer or elder. It's a third category that he's referring to here. Three, Paul uses the opposite phrase, wife of one husband, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, referring to widows who are to be supported by the church. There are a number of qualifications, and one of them is that they were to be the wife of one man or one husband. 
So it's clear that Paul does not use these phrases interchangeably. He uses them very specifically. He uses husband of one wife with the men he's referring to in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. And in chapter 5, the wife of one husband in connection with widows. Number point four. If Paul had wanted the qualification for elders to be gender neutral, he could have combined these two phrases that we've just looked at. The overseer must be the husband of one wife or the wife of one husband. It'd be very easy for Paul to say that, but he didn't. Point five. As we've seen in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Paul deals in order with smaller and smaller groups. First, all people, then men and women separately, and finally, husband, one wife who are qualified for office in the church. Point six. The word for man or husband in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3 is aneir in Greek. And when Paul uses this word, he never uses it in a gender-neutral sense. He never uses it to refer to men and women. He always means man or husband, never simply person. No doubt it's in view of such facts that out of 61 translations I surveyed, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, only four translated in a gender-neutral way. Beginning, interestingly enough, with the Catholic New American Bible in 1970. I won't take the time to go through all those translations of, uh, you know, but there are four, that only four. New American Bible in 1970, the New Revised Standard Version in 1989, the Contemporary English Version in 1995, and the Common English Bible in 2011. In other words, 93% of the English versions over a period of 600 years have recognized that the text specifies that the overseer be male. This is very impressive, especially since most of these translations employ dozens of translators and editors working as a team from a variety of church faiths. The obvious meaning of this phrase, as one um, medieval scholar said, is of a man who, having contracted a monogamous marriage, is faithful to his marriage vows, excluding alike polygamy, concubinage, and promiscuous indulgence. So with this very compact phrase, Paul eliminates all kinds of problems. The restriction of this office to men is unclear only for those determined to see it otherwise. By the way, it's important for us to notice that like all the others, this requirement is not optional. Notice verse 2 says that a bishop must be, must be. The word is de in Greek, plus the verb to be. The wording is as clear in Greek as it, the word must is in English. And it's helpful to notice how some of this, these words are used. The word de, which means must, is only used in the New Testament as something that's very, very important, really a divine imperative. So, for example, Matthew 16, 21, Jesus must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. In Matthew 24, the signs must take place before he comes, verse 6. 
In Mark 13, verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. In Luke 24, verse 44, everything about me, Jesus says, must be fulfilled. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, Jesus, Paul says, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And later in verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in any of these cases, is there any doubt in your minds that these are optional? No, they're not optional. They're, re- they're obviously required, right? They must happen. That's why the word must is used. In fact, there are five ways in Greek to command something, ranging from the gentlest, softest way to the most imperative way, the the absolute must way. And, of course, that fifth and strongest way is here in verse 2, must. The command is as clear as the command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy in Exodus 20, verse 8. Now, of course, this biblical command about elders or ministers who oversee the church is not one of the Ten Commandments, but that doesn't mean it's not still a command. The command to abstain from unclean foods is not one of the Ten, but it's still a command that we need to keep. So is Jesus' command to follow his example in washing each other's feet. And his command in connection with the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. Or the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. None of these are part of the Ten Commandments, but they're still commands. They're not optional in any way. So when Paul says must, he means must. And he chose the strongest possible way in Greek to say it. Now, lest we think that this is only Paul, it's important to remember that from the book of Acts and even from the Gospels, we see that the system of church leadership that's established in the New Testament didn't begin with the apostles. It began with Jesus himself. Because, as you know, know, there were lots and lots of crowds that followed Jesus. The crowds followed, and we could look at passage after passage where many, many, hundreds, thousands followed Jesus. But not all of them were disciples. The disciples were those who followed Jesus everywhere. But not all the disciples were apostles. They were not part of the twelve. Jesus, from the disciples that followed him everywhere, specifically chose twelve And as it says in Mark, in fact, it'd be good for us to just look at Mark 3 in this connection. Mark chapter 3. And it's interesting that Luke, in his parallel to this passage, indicates that before Jesus chose the twelve, he prayed all night. It was a very important decision. Verse 13, Mark 3.13, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Okay, and and then it goes on, of course. But two primary reasons he set apart the twelve were what? That they might be with him wherever, even when he was alone from everybody else. The disciples were with him. 
and number two, that he might send them out to preach. Now, it's interesting, this word appointed, he appointed 12. The word in Greek is poieo, and some have said, well, that doesn't mean ordained. It's a very common word, and that's true, but in this context, it's very clear that it means ordain, and let me show you why. Um, If you look at Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, the same word is used of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed or, or made him, you know, the same word, poieo, who appointed him, ordained him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now, Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus is called an apostle here, which means someone who's sent forth by someone in authority. So who sent Jesus as an apostle? The Father. And just as he says in John 20, 21, to the 12 apostles, or 11 apostles, minus Judas, he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. It's the same relationship of sending. Jesus was ordained by the Father for his work here. And the apostles were ordained by Jesus for their work of spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So, Jesus ordained the apostles, the twelve. This was the foundation of the church. He wanted to make sure that when he left, ascended to heaven, that it was a solid foundation that would not be shaken, that would not be dismantled. Now, of course, we know that the 12 he chose at the beginning didn't look very promising. In fact, the most promising of the 12 was who? It seemed, from a human point of view, the most promising one was Judas. He was well-respected. He was even maybe from, seems like, connected with the priestly families because he, you know, Iscariot seems to refer to the place where he came from, which was a, a, a center of many priests and um, a priestly city. And he obviously knew the chief priests and leadership very well. He was able to uh, make deals with them. But it was a very human way of looking at things. That's not the way Jesus looked at things. The disciples did. In fact, we're told they recommended Judas to Jesus. They really wanted him to be among the twelve. They thought that would be helpful. And Jesus accepted that. Jesus is the apostle or shepherd. He's also called, let's look at some of these other passages. 1 Peter chapter 2 about Jesus, just to make the point crystal clear. 1 Peter 2, verse 25. So it's not just Paul that's speaking about Jesus as the leader, head of the church, but notice verse 1 Peter 2, 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the whom? Shepherd and overseer or bishop of your souls. It's the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 3 here. Episkopos in Greek. Jesus is the chief 
overseer. He's called actually the chief shepherd in chapter 5. Notice chapter 5 um, of 1 Peter. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Isn't that interesting? The apostle Peter is calling himself a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. By the way, that's why when we ordained the eight ministers on Sabbath and they introduced them as elder, this is the office. We are all brethren. We are all one. We are all elders, not one above another. The president of the world church, Elder Wilson, it's the same qualification from Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, and that's, that's the system that was actually already established by Jesus with the apostles. So Peter, one of the twelve, knowing and recognizing this, says, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. Now there's the the word in the verb form that we just saw in chapter 2, meaning shepherd. Uh, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, again the word episkopos, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being what? Examples to the flock, and when who? The chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the chief overseer. As the head of the whole church, under him are other shepherds and overseers. So let's, let's uh, kind of summarize what we've found. First of all, in looking at 1 Timothy, it is connected with the whole church and it's what we believe and practice as a church. It is one of the earliest church manuals. And so this is a theological issue in 1 Timothy. The clear progression, first, gender inclusiveness, all people, first part of chapter 2. Then, gender specific, men and women. And finally, in chapter 3, gender exclusive, husband of one wife, as qualifications for ordained church office. This shows that Paul has chosen his language very carefully and deliberately. Number two, the fact that Paul uses the creation order from Eden as the basis for the roles of men and women in the church shows two things. First of all, that this is a theological issue, not just a practical issue, because he quotes from Genesis. And these roles were God's ideal before the fall. So they also reflect God's ideal for us today. There's no higher ideal than what was in Eden. Also, three, the fact that Paul connects the submission of female believers to the established male leadership in the church with maintaining peace and harmony in the church is instructive for us as we seek to maintain unity and harmony in the church today. 
And let's just close with prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word uh, of truth speaks clearly as we ask for wisdom and are guided by the Holy Spirit comparing scripture with scripture. We just pray, Lord, that through these moments this morning, that some of these passages that have perplexed and, and maybe seemed confusing to some would be now much more clear. And in fact, through this week, that passages that have been read very differently sometimes would be seen clearly and, um, and uh, without question what they actually mean based on a comparison of Scripture and Scripture. So we just pray that you'll continue to guide us as we study together, as we study individually too, Lord. Guide our study of your word that we may, as, as Paul said to Timothy, be faithful um, workmen who need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing your word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.